Resurrection Sunday, as Easter is commonly called, is the day in which we as Christians celebrate with the church for the last 2,000 years the resurrection from the dead, the core conviction that Jesus Christ, who lived, nobody, nobody, uh, there's no controversy really around the life of Jesus. There's really very little controversy around Jesus as, as a great, even uh, inspired or uh, enlightened teacher. Uh, there's very little controversy around whether Jesus actually died the death of a common criminal and, w- and that his own people turned against him, although I would argue that his own people is all people at all times in all of the world, uh, for humanity turned against the God-man, which is the whole reason he came, is to absorb our own rebellion into himself. There's no controversy around his life, his death, or even the greatness of his teachings. The controversy and the sticking point for most people uh, is the miraculous aspects of the life of Christ and the claim that Christians have always made that Jesus is not just man, but that he is God and man. That the creator became creature. That God entered into his own creation and entered specifically into the human story, the center of his creation. This is why Christians give a unique dignity to humanity over the rest of the animal world because human beings are made in the image of God. They are God-breathed. God breathed his breath and we will make man in our image, and which means that we are made for relationship. We are made to know him and to know one another. Sin has destroyed that relationship in three directions. We have lost our relationship with God, we have lost our ability to relate to one another, and we are an absolute enigma to ourselves. This is the dilemma of human history. The gospel's tenacious claim, not only that Jesus is both God and man, that God became man for us and for our good because God is a loving God who has chosen in his own freedom to love rebellious, sinful people in their sin. But God is not content to leave us there. And the gospel story is that Jesus lived the life that we could not live. He showed us what man, what humanity was supposed to look like. Humanity in absolute and total devotion and allegiance uh, to the will of God. Union, communion with God is what Jesus showed us in perfect obedience. He accomplished in the context of broken, fragile humanity what we are incapable of accomplishing in ourselves. God's good news is that it has come down to us. He has eradicated the religious impulse, or at least made it of no effect, because humanity's desire to build to the heavens, to reach God in their own effort, has always ended in futility. And God understands our fragility. He understands our impotence. He understands our brokenness. And he has done something about it in Jesus. And the reason we claim that is because we hold tenaciously to the, to the thing that is often the biggest sticking point for the critics of Christianity. And that is that Jesus, yes, walked on this earth. Yes, he taught profound and enlightened things. Yes, he died a death that he did not deserve. But the thing that we hold tenaciously to is that something happened on the cross that cannot be explained in human language, 
because it, is a, it has cosmic significance, which is that he took into himself the rebellion against God. Jesus on the cross is both the judge and the judged on our behalf and dealt with sin, death, and the dominions of darkness. And those threefold realities is that we believe that the cross is the place where those things were, that where Jesus was victorious over death, sin, and the dominions of darkness. And this is why we unwaveringly hold to a physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ three days after his death. That he was buried and on the third day he rose from the dead. The, the language that scripture uses of resurrection, and keep in mind, people will say, why do you put so much emphasis on the cross? Why so much emphasis on his death? Why not more emphasis on his resurrection? Resurrection insinuates what? Death. <laughs> God wouldn't need to be resurrected if he didn't first die. He entered into death and he, that is the defeat of death is all wrapped up in his resurrection. And here's the thing. One of the greatest arguments for the authenticity of the Christian message is what they call the Jerusalem problem. And that is how did the gospel, this little small remnant, this little side fringe group who centered themselves around the teaching, the teaching of an uneducated uh, man from a backwater town in, in Israel, how did this this little group, which would be considered a cult, uh, how did it explode and transform human history as we know it? How did that happen? And the fact is, is that even if you're here today as a non-Christian, as an absolute skeptic, your non-Christian skepticism, you can thank Jesus for your ability to hold that because everything in Western civilization owes its existence to Christianity. That's, there's no, you cannot deny that. Dan Holland, the great agnostic historian, wrote his whole book on, called Dominion. It's a massive tome. And he's like, you cannot, you cannot actually look at Western history and deny that Christianity is not responsible for even our ability to deny Christianity. And so it's everything we know in Western civilization has is, is been a gift to us essentially from the church. As Christians, the whole explosion of the church was wrapped up in this fundamental belief. There was nothing to gain in claiming the resurrection of Jesus. The only thing that the early Christians were going to gain from claiming that Jesus rose from the dead was death. <laughs> because they were going to oppose Caesar as Lord under the great Roman Empire by declaring that Jesus is Lord. Not Jesus was Lord, He is Lord because we saw Him with our eyes. We saw Him raised from the dead. It is the eyewitness account to the resurrection of Jesus that actually fueled the early expansion of the church. Now, as Christians, we hold tenaciously to the belief that it wasn't just their eyewitness account to the resurrection of Jesus, but it was, the, it was the sending of the Spirit that Jesus promised as we hold tenaciously to a triune God. God is one God revealed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus told His disciples, go back to the upper room and wait until the promised one comes. And they watched Jesus ascend into the heavens and he was taken before them. And remember, Angel said, why are you still looking up to the sky? He's going to come back the same way he left. You go 
and do what he said. <laughs> Go be the witnesses that he's called you to be. And they prayed and they waited. And on Pentecost, the Spirit came and the Spirit blew them out into the streets of Jerusalem. And from there, the expansion of the church. That's why the book of Acts is merely a continuation of the work of Jesus now through the church, through Spirit-filled men and women uh, who carried the message that we worship and serve the God of the universe who has revealed himself through the one and only Son, Jesus, the God-man, who lived, died, rose from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and has sent his Spirit, which you are witnessing and experiencing today. And this is what the church continues to do. Now that is a quick synopsis, essentially, of the gospel story. And this is why when we talk about the gospel, the gospel is not just the life of Christ. It's not, incarnation includes the entrance of God into his own creation. It includes his life, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and the sending of his spirit. That is, the, that is a holistic gospel. But the question I want us to focus in on today is how essential is the resurrection for us as Christians, and I would argue that it is the source of our hope, a living hope. In 1 Peter chapter 3, or chapter 1, verse 3, and verse 8, Peter writes this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope. He has given us a new birth. It's that language of that what I think many people view as like some sort of weird Christianese to be born again. I actually remember a girl coming up to me in the early days of Door of Hope when the church was just filled with 20 to 25 year olds. And she's like, I really hate that phrase. It's so, she's like, it's so Christian y. I'm like, yeah, I don't know what to say to that. And I realized that what she was saying is that in her mind that born again was something that was like added to the Christian vernacular. It was seen in movies like that movie, that sarcastic movie around born again Christians called Saved. You remember that movie in the 90s? Uh, but, but the problem is, is that actually born again is the language that Jesus himself used. He tells Nicodemus, he says, listen, unless one is born again, he'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven that there is a new birth that is required, that Jesus' entrance into the world is to put right what is wrong in the human heart. And the human heart, we are told, is wicked and deceitful above all things and not to be trusted. It's funny because we're the products of the 20th, of the, the scientism of the, of the 20th century and Freud's demand that we actually unleash the human heart and all of its desires. And although Freud has been kind of discounted as, as not nearly as important as Jung as a psychologist goes, he definitely set in motion a hyper-sexualized, hyper-individualistic uh, Pandora's box that has never been shut, which is we are squelching little egos and minds by, by not allowing them to chase after every desire and impulse. We don't want to squelch a person, a personhood by, by, uh, by putting parameters or playing into, you know, the, the superstitions of the past. But how wrong he was, and we're paying for the results of that still to this day. 
He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And this living hope is something that comes through the new birth, but the living hope is built upon not just Jesus' resurrection from the dead, but that His living presence available to us now. This is the essence of Christian hope. The reason that we must hold tenaciously to the resurrection story from 2,000 years ago is because in declaring that He rose from the dead, we are declaring that He is alive. Not just alive, but that He is the source of life. And this is the hope of the believer. You see, this is what I want us to understand today, is that the world does not deal in the currency of hope. It doesn't. Its delusion lies in the pursuit of happiness at all costs. And why I say that that is a delusion is because happiness is always temporal. It's always temporal. It's, it's, it doesn't last. Everything in our society, everything that we are told, everything that we are encouraged to chase after is never meant to bring any lasting satisfaction. Think about it. We live in a technological age. Everything, our devices, which have practically become a part of our bodies, are, are meant to leave us quickly unsatisfied so that we will what? Purchase the next device. If I have that, I will be ha I'm already thinking about what will make me happy the moment I get the thing that I thought would make me happy, and I'm already disinterested in that thing within a week because it didn't actually make me happy. Isn't that the thing? And it's that if I have that, if I get a spouse, if I have children, if I get a, if I get a house, if I have a job, if I have success, if I have acknowledgement, if I have all these things, all of these things that we chase. You know what a midlife crisis is? You know what it is? It's me. It's what it is. That's um, why I'm wearing literally my pajama shirt under my blazer. I have the matching pants. My son can wear them. My midlife crisis is that it's not cool when you're 50 to wear them, the whole set out in public. Um, but it was cool when I was, if I was 21, again, you know, our worship, our youth, our love of the pursuit of things that make us happy. A midlife crisis is this, is you get to the middle of your life and you realize that everything you thought was going to bring you ultimate satisfaction did not, it did not deliver the goods it promised. In fact, the more that you chase after the things that the world tells you will bring you satisfaction, the more you find yourself in a crisis, that's why it's called a crisis, because you're just halfway to death. And let's face it, I'm going to turn 50 next month. I don't want to live to 100. I'm over halfway to death. Like, like I'm, I'm, I pray every day that Jesus will take me before depends are necessary. And, you know, that could be next year. Uh, I don't know. All I know is that, that life itself feels this life as we know it has a temporary component to it. And this is why the Christian uh, is unique and I believe why we need to understand that the, that the disillusionment and the despair that we see in our culture today, I think that the pursuit of happiness has ultimately led in this psychological era that we live where the, 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 the internal personhood is the ruling reality by which we define everything else. And the, the rise of the ego 
and our individualism, my personal happiness, if all you have, if we were to believe the world that, that says that the secular age that says there is no spiritual reality, that, we're, that our emotions and everything that we experience is just a product of, of chemicals uh, and sort of a deterministic reality, and that when we're dead, it's over, everything is over, then the only satisfactory basis for living is to make sure that you get the most out of life for yourself as possible. And that should be the basis of actual real happiness. But we know for a fact that it's not. And so what that's led to is actually, I think, an increasing um, acceptance of a nihilistic worldview that there actually isn't any meaning in anything. And despair and the loneliness and the brokenness that we see so prevalent in our age and the constant attempts to redefine what identity is, all of these things are chasing after uh, the, the, the hyper-sexualized age we live in. All of these things are an attempt to find some satisfactory meaning for why life is so hard. And we don't realize that all of the selfish attempts to protect ourselves from the pain that others can cause and to make the most out of my life for myself only leads to an ever-increasing despair and an ever-increasing isolation from one another that, that we should be asking the question as Christians is why do we who have the hope of eternity and the fundamental belief that Jesus is the one who has been victorious over death and sin in the dominions of darkness, we still listen to the voices of this world and play according to its rules. And I think it's a major problem. This was meant to be an encouraging message. <laughs> I didn't sleep very well last night. You know, it's funny, Christians are often accused of, of magical thinking. I always love that phrase. Magical thinking is not necessarily a positive phrase. It's the idea that your external world uh, is, uh, your internal world uh, uh, corresponds to the external world in a way that, uh, that your longings inside actually impact and affect the external world. And so it's this idea of living in a constant state of fantasy of like making everything about you. Like you, you kind of, you feel like everything that happens is because it's something that you thought about or some, somehow everything's working around your story. Uh, and I think that it's a real modern dilemma. Listen, that's not a, that, Christians should not be accused of magical thinking. I think Karl Marx should be accused of magical thinking. Marx referred to religion as the opiate of the people, and he called the world to take a revolutionary stance to take down the oppressive regime, the bourgeois. The, the oppressor was whoever was the top dog, essentially. The haves versus the have-nots. And if the have-nots can take down the haves, then the have-nots will have. But what he didn't realize is that he thought that if we actually got rid of, of the, the imagination that has run rampant through you know, the dark ages and in all of our superstitious beliefs, and we just got down to the reality that the, and this is the greatest magical thinking piece that he put forth, is that every human being possesses the ability to contribute to this perfect utopian ideal of the brotherhood of man. That essentially God is within us. That is the humanistic worldview. He didn't bring a very spiritual, although he looked like a prophet, he didn't bring a spiritual tone to it, but 
Sadly, what he didn't even realize is that he would unleash through the acceptance of his ideology, and it's still running rampant today, that, uh, that it actually would birth the most violent century in human history. <laughs> because here's what happened. The have-nots did take down the haves. And then they became haves that were more, more uh, there was greater tyranny, greater violence in their control than the group they brought down. It's a fascinating reality because they wasn't taking into consideration something that Christians have always known, that people suck. And see, if we actually believe that, we would be far more enamored with grace. And I'm not, all joking aside, if we understood the gospel, our hope is not built upon my ability. What Peter is telling us here is that the living hope is not something that you find within the depths of your own being so that you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps and arise to the occasion and take the mountain. Because even if you take the mountain, you will actually end up being the very person that you tried to put down. Because that's the nature of human experience is that if we think that we can get rid of violence by violence, all we do is create more violence. And this is why the gospel is so compelling because it is the most revolutionary movement in human history because of its counterintuitive nature, because it is an upside-down kingdom that said the way that we defeat our enemy is actually by loving them, by laying our lives down for them. See, the world's all about propping up the ego and telling us that we can be anything that we want to be and that we could accomplish anything that we want to accomplish. And all we have to do is believe in ourselves. And that belief in self has created a cultural phenomenon where it is the cult of selfhood to, at the expense of everyone else. And this is what's turned our culture into a victim culture. It's what's turned us into like, I'm this way because of you. And point the, the universe swarms with scapegoats. No, the Christian hope eradicates the victim narrative. And it says that Jesus died for the victim and the victimizer, and that I will play both roles. And that my hope doesn't lie in this short life that we each live. You know, it's amazing. You know, we live longer today. The average age span, I think even at the beginning of the 20th century, was only like like 60 or something like that. Uh, and, you know, now we live to 90, but we're more unhappy. But not that we should be wanting to go back to what was. Every age has its own issues, its own problems. And what we need to be focused on is how are we bringing the living hope of Christ into the narrative that is so prevalent that is causing so much despair. And we can't bring hope if we ourselves aren't holding tenaciously to it. This is the hope that is connected to the resurrection of Christ. I love this. As though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The living hope is Christ's living presence with us now. This is why it says in Colossians 1.27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That Jesus is our hope. Chesterton once wisely said in his 
profound book, Orthodoxy, which I used to read every year when I first became a believer, he said the, the paradox of Christian virtues is this. We tell people, be courageous and you'll be willing to lay your life down for something good. He says, no, the Christian didn't become courageous. Uh, they, didn't, they weren't courageous and then laid their lives down for their beliefs. It's like they found something that was worth dying for and they became courageous. And this is the uniqueness of Christian hope. It's not hope as the world's focus on kind of that temporal satisfaction. This is a hope that actually sustains us in the fact that the rest of life ebbs and flows. It's what allows us to navigate the impossibility of life without losing our souls and our minds and our hearts. It's the belief that my happiness is actually tied up with an eternal promise that one day I will see the object of my hope face to face, Christ Himself. I, I love this because the source of our hope it, it is fundamental to our belief that the end of time as we know it is only the beginning, that the best is yet to come. But that doesn't change the fact that though death is a defeated enemy, it's still is still a problem in our, in our culture and it still haunts us even as Christians, which is why we need to understand and believe tenaciously to this central tenet of the Christian faith, is that Jesus has defeated death. It's a living hope. It's more than just a living hope though. It's also a purifying hope. In 1 John, I've always found this passage incredibly profound. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, it says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. It shouldn't be surprising when Christians are misunderstood, historically have under, entered into unbelievable persecution and experienced incredible, incredible loss when Jesus himself said that the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one and that there is a blindness that says that humanity, the light came into the world, but that man preferred darkness. And this is why it is so important for us as Christians to understand that our hope, our, our clinging to our hope, for us, hope is not like the hoping in a game. I hope that that team wins. For us, hope is this strange blend of, of both desire and expectation. There is a certainty that comes out of this hope. It, and it is a, a desire to be with God and an expectation that I am with God and shall be with Him in fullness in the future. And I love this. He goes, he goes on to say, he says, listen, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. All who have this hope in themselves, in Him, in her, purify themselves just as He is pure. In other words, those that hold tenaciously to the conviction that not only Jesus rose from the dead, but that He is alive and that He is returning. It's called, it's called an apocalyptic worldview, which I think the church needs to return to. You know, I think we got so, Christians got so, I'm grateful that I came to faith late in life. 
because I didn't, I wasn't the product of the, of the Left Behind series, okay? But I do remember before I was a Christian when Rolling Stone did a big article piece and it was like this blasting of like, this is what Christians believe, is that they're going to be wasp-like creatures that fly out of a pit with women's heads. And there, I remember there were drawings of these like, these really terrifying like heavy metal looking creatures like flying out of this pit in torment and it, it just made us look ridiculous. And I think it's, what's, what's amazing to me is how Christians love to be like, I don't like, you know, like there, we have these areas of our faith that we're embarrassed by, right? It's like, well, you know, I believe in Jesus, but you know, the whole thing about his return and, you know, apocalypse and antichrist, you know, all that stuff's kind of silly. And I'm like, dude, once you believe that a guy died on a cross and carried all the sins of the world and atoned for your death, uh, that you're dead and in rebellion against God. You've already crossed the threshold of any sort of normalcy. So let's not point fingers and decide that we're not going to believe in a central tenet of the faith. I don't care. Whatever the nuances of the hyper-literalistic approach or the dispensationalist approach to eschatology, none of that matters to me. I don't, but one thing that the church has always held to and is never swayed from is that Jesus is returning physically and that he is putting right what is wrong in the world, and that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And what John is saying here is actually that hope is central to our understanding of, of, of sanctification. How the Christian becomes more Christ-like is actually determined by our unwavering grasping and holding on to a disciplined hope that Jesus will return. That it's not my responsibility to get the world ready for him. It's my responsibility to be a faithful witness until God brings me home unless he is to return while I'm alive. And the fact is, is that our embarrassment of the doctrine of the second coming and it wrapped up in because some two guys decided to turn Bible narratives into fiction which is always a dangerous thing to do with the Bible in general. I, I, I always say, like, don't turn any biblical stories into fiction. It's why I didn't actually even like The Passion of Christ. Because it's still a movie, and I didn't like it because I found myself praying to Jim Caraviesel for like a month. Um, and as, as compelling as he was. And before that, it was like Willem Dafoe or something. I just like, that's not helpful. Uh, there's a reason why Jesus isn't described in Scripture. And there's a reason why we're called to not have idols. And so I, what I, my point is this, is that I think that an extreme emphasis on a particular type of eschatology actually has turned the church away from the, a, a core conviction of church history and a, and a tenet in our, in our creeds, which is Jesus is coming back. And here it says, when we see him, we shall become like he is. And whoever has this hope in them purifies themselves just as he is pure. I think that this tells us something about hope, that hope for the Christian is not static. It moves us. That hope does not simply wait upon God in patient resignation, but it resolves to move forward in the confident expectation that God's grace is more powerful than human sin. That God's patience is more powerful than human stubbornness. It is driven by the firm belief that God is reconciling the world to Himself through Christ. We know the end of the story. 
Chesterton's beautiful statement, I looked around at the world and I saw that the world was telling, the, telling a story. If it's telling a story, there must be a storyteller. I saw that the world was full of magic, and if it's full of magic, then there must be a magician behind it. And I think that this is a profound thing for us, is that we have the end of the story. We don't know the nuances or the details of every facet of how it's going to play out, but what we do know is the end of the story, and the end of the story for us is good, and it has to be the thing that we cling to if we're going to be able to handle and navigate the challenges of existence today, because life isn't just hard, it's impossible. It's terminal, as I like to say. Hope is a purifying hope. And finally, our hope needs to be a disciplined hope. A disciplined hope. And I'll explain what I mean by that. In Hosea, there's this profound passage in which the prophet, speaking to the children of Israel, the word of the Lord, and the word of the Lord to Israel, which had become an unfaithful people had turned away from the living God, the God who rescued them out of slavery, had delivered them, brought them into the promised land, and yet they still turned to the gods of the surrounding nations, and they, and they gave themselves up. And, and the, the language this uses is, is like the unfaithful, Israel is like an unfaithful wife who's sleeping around uh, with, with someone that's not her husband. And Hosea himself, the prophet, is married to a woman who is unfaithful, and God tells him to stay with that woman and to pursue her in grace, to pursue. It's one of the beautiful pictures of grace, the, a love without contingency, a love that, that pushes and pursues and refuses to let go, and it, as a picture of God's very love for His people. And Israel is His people as we are His people. And God, and we are unfaithful as Israel was unfaithful. And what God says through the prophet Hosea in this powerful moment, Israel's been under incredible judgment for its infidelity to, to, to false gods. He says, therefore, I am now going to allure her and I will lead her into the wilderness. The wilderness is always a picture of barrenness. And there are times for us as Christians for our hope to be revitalized and to become real, we have to be stripped away, stripped away from us all of the things that we have chased after to bring some kind of satisfaction that only the hope of the gospel can actually bring. It's that Ecclesiastes passage that God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. Every pursuit for satisfaction is driven by actually a holy desire, which is a desire to be one with God. We just fill that desire with all sorts of other things because we don't recognize it for what it is. It's why human beings are in this kind of perpetual, peculiar state of loneliness. is because we're trying to fill a God-given void with the things of this world, and it doesn't last. It doesn't satisfy and so God says, I'll bring her into the wilderness. I'm going to strip her free of her distractions. I'm going to take away the multitude of voices, the competition, if you will. And what does he say? And I'm going to beat her? Nope. He says, and I'm going to speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. This is what I want us to focus on. This is where we get the name for our church, and it's key to understanding what Door of Hope is about. The Valley of Achor is a place 
that is only mentioned three times in Scripture, but it literally means trouble. It goes all the way back to the book of Joshua when Achan, who was a, a, an, an Israelite who stole uh, treasures from, from, Jer- from the ruins of Jericho when God says you were to take nothing from that land, and he hid it in his tent, and he brought defeat upon Israel in the battle against Ai. His name, the name Achan literally means troubler. And, and Achan and his family are judged for this crime. I, I actually read that, that text very powerfully that he is forgiven for even Joshua says, tell me what you have done, my son. And he confesses the sin. There's repentance, but it's also a powerful picture that, of cause and effect that there are still consequences to sin even when it's forgiven. But sin nonetheless must be judged. And so Achor, the Valley of Trouble, is a place where sin is judged but it appears two more times in Scripture. And this is why I think Achor is actually a beautiful picture of the cross of Calvary. Because the cross is a place where the ugliness of human sin is made, is maximized into visibility. And, the, and it's maximized into visibility because of the holiness and the, the perfection and the innocence of the one who hung on the cross, Jesus, the Son of God. And in that place, Sin is judged. Jesus is the judge and the judged in our place. What a profound reality. Sin is judged once and for all. Sin died with Jesus on the cross. That's a profound thing. And like Achor, he takes the valley of trouble, the trouble of human existence, and he turns it into something hopeful. This is why, why the cross has to stay central to every Christian discourse if anything is going to be meaningful of what we say. But Achor becomes mentioned again in Isaiah. Isaiah 65, it says, I will, I will lead Israel into the, like sheep into the valley of Achor and there will give them rest. All of a sudden this place, this place of trouble where sin has actually brought ruin and defeat to a people and must be judged, now it's a place where rest is secured. And then in Hosea, you have this powerful picture. Once again, it's no longer a place of judgment, but now it's a place, that place that was once trouble becomes the very door of hope. And this tells us something profound about hope. The Christian hope is not the false premise that those who put their faith in Jesus no longer have troubles. I spoke for a very large, um, I, I, I've been doing a lot of um, interviews uh, uh, in podcasts for, over, for the book, and it was interesting, the um, amount of theology out there that is built around this idea that if you put your trust in Jesus, um, he's going to give you everything you ever wanted. The, the, the cosmic Santa Claus uh, Jesus is a fascinating one to me uh, because the vast majority of Christians live in places where there will never be a single possibility of ever rising up out of the unbelievable, unhealthy poverty that they live in. <laughs> ever. When you think about how many people are coming to faith in places like China, in, in India, and numerous third world countries, the oppression and the violence brought against Christians, where some of the most the hotbeds of conversion right now is in the Middle East, where you will be put to death for your faith. 
I have met, I have met Christians from Iran that who, a couple that I became friends with that lost their pastor. Who's, he was executed for running an underground church in Tehran. And that is incredible. Like, we can't even imagine that. Can't even fathom that. And so we can't say, I was fascinated. I'm doing these interviews, and there are, like, so many people I talk to that have this theology that, like, Jesus, it's, it's like this weird westernized vision of the gospel that like God somehow it's the Bob Dylan song God's on our side you know and uh, and and Jesus you know because we're the greatest ever Jesus is going to bless us with unbelievable stuff things and uh, you know and he's going to heal us of every sickness and and I'm like well, so what? You still got to die. That's my response. I don't care if he raised you from the dead. You still got to die again. And I don't care if he gives you everything you ever wanted. You still can't take it with you. It's, how is that actually a gospel of hope? That's not hope. That's, that's applying the world's vision of the pursuit of happiness to the gospel. Hope for the Christian is not the eradication of difficulty. It's not. It never has been. Not only that, Paul writes, but we rejoice in our suffering knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What sets us apart from the world is not the lack of suffering, but it is the hope in the midst of it. That is the hope of the Christian. It's the ability to believe like my friend Craig did in the last week of his life as he dies of cancer at 45 years old, leaving behind his three little girls who weren't even, one of them was in grade school, one was in middle school, and one was in high school, and his wife and his very successful practice as a pediatrician, all of it falls by the wayside as his body is ravished by a cancer brain tumor he lived five years with it, and never have I seen faith more beautifully illustrated than in a man whose outward body was perishing, but his inward body was being renewed. Was he scared? Yes. Was he heartbroken that he wasn't going to get to walk his daughters down the aisle someday? Absolutely. Did he hate seeing his body diminish when he was a marathon runner? Of course he did. But there was a joy and a peace and a beauty that flowed out of an, an immovable hope. And what's so fascinating is that he came to faith three months before that tumor was discovered. Door of Hope, came to faith at Door of Hope. Brand new believer. And then he gets a death sentence literally a couple months after he gets saved. And then he lived out the power of the gospel. I want that. That's the piece I want. I want what I saw in Craig when the woman came and washed his body in the hospital in the humiliation of a man having to wear a diaper and have his body stripped naked in, because he can't even bathe himself and for him to look into her face and, and to crack a joke of lightness as his body's withered away. It was so hard I had to look away because he's like, you can stay. He doesn't care. And he's like, and I'm like, man, my vanity, I'm like, I can't imagine being exposed like this. And he's like, 
And I think about Jesus exposed on the cross and the only thing he can think to say is, Father, forgive them because that's the heart of God. And I remember Craig looking at that woman's face and saying, you are so beautiful. And she said, no, honey, you're beautiful. As she bathed this body, giving me one of the most beautiful pictures of grace I have ever seen in my life. And it was the purest hope, the hope that this isn't the end, this is just the beginning. Two people that held on to the hope of Jesus met as strangers in a room and had a moment of grace that transcends all of the heartbreak in human existence. And I was like, I saw the perfection of a holy hope in that moment. It's like a sacred moment I'll take to my grave. And it's the moment, it's the same thing I experienced when I looked into my dad's eyes last February on the, on the 8th, and I watched him struggle to breathe, to just bring air into his lungs, and to, and to look at me terrified, and to weep, and for me to not look away and just say, Dad, I love you. Jesus loves you. He's with you. And there's hope. What would I have to offer him if I did not have hope that this was not the end, but only the beginning? And I believe that my dad embodied those very words, into your hands I commit my spirit. Because I watched peace come over his face as he took his last breath. And I think this is the hope of the Christian. It's the, door, it's the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble, becoming the very place where God takes the most dissonant notes of our lives and weaves them into his redemptive story. And this is why we as Christians cannot let go of our hope because hope is the thing that we should be offering to a hopeless world. And if we don't have that hope, what are we offering? What, what, does, do people want what we have? Do they want the Jesus that we present? And I don't think what people want is a Jesus who gives you everything you ever wanted. I think what people want is a Jesus who actually can make sense of the insanity of life and who loves us in the midst of it. I don't need to know why I suffer. I just need to know that God has done something about it, and he has. And this is why we must hold tenaciously to the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the sending of the Spirit through our Savior Jesus. This is why there is no other name under heaven by which one can be saved, because to look into the face of Jesus is to look into the face of God. God has met us in our humanity, and He is staying in that humanity for us because it is God's nature to love a love that comes without qualification. It is a love that is purely motivated by his own heart toward the unlovable, which is you and I. That's our hope. What a gift. You guys, he loves you. He's for you. On your worst day, he's crazy about you. And if you don't hold on to the hope that God is with you, for you, you will lose your purpose and your satisfaction because real satisfaction is available, even in the midst of difficulty. That's what makes us different. We don't suffer less than those outside of the faith. We suffer differently because we have a different ground for being. Amen?